This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we talk to some winners at the Fashion Awards in London. We also hear a wrap-up of Design Miami from Monocle's US editor, Chris Lord, and check in with the design team at Swedish electric car maker, Polestar. All that coming up on Monocle On Design. Last night in London, the Royal Albert Hall was filled with creatives and innovators celebrating the best in design at the annual Fashion Awards. The event saw the British Fashion Council award 23 trophies, recognising local and international talent, both individual and businesses, who have made outstanding contributions to the industry over the past year. One of the accolades was the Leaders of Change Environment Award, which was shared among a host of designers, including the creative director at Chloe, Gabriella Hurst. Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi, caught up with Gabriella to discuss her win. It's always an honour, right? Especially from such a prestigious council, which is the British Fashion Council. And it's an honour for our team and for the dedication in both at, at Gabriella Hurst and Chloe that they do in trying to find a way to do business that is in balance with nature and understanding that we can't move forward like this. So whatever ability and platform we have, it has to bring change. You have been doing so much work in doing business differently and respecting nature. So I'd love to hear a little bit about some of the changes that you have been spearheading with your team and that you are most proud of. Since the inception of Gavrila Hurst, and you can go back to the first article that we had in Women's Word Daily over seven years ago, which I said, I'd rather people buy one good sweater than 10. You know, it was always mm-hmm. a choice of organic compounded growth than rapid growth. It's easy to say if you don't have it, but when we had the choices of rapid growth that came to our door and the decision was to no do it like this because it didn't make sense for the environment and it it only made sense if you wanted the awareness of Gabriela Hurst to grow much faster. And this was never part of our view plan. It was always long-term view and sustainability. And I'm very proud what we did to our packaging, to biodegradable, compostable packaging with a very small team in just one year. That was in from 2017 and 2018. Before the pandemic, we did the first show that ever measured the carbon footprint. Nobody really, really was talking in fashion about carbon footprint, or it was even into the consciousness of the language. And that's something that Really, I would like to say there was some kind of genius involved in that, but it was really more common sense than anything else, because I was like, how can we reduce something we don't know the number of? And so that was really just common ranching sense, (laughs) farmer's mentality. I'm also really proud of all the different NGOs that we've worked with, because it's not just ingredients that you use, it's who makes your product. And the fact that we can employ non-for-profits all over the world and especially those empowering women. So our product, it also feels good because of that. I'm really proud of all the work that all the teams in Chloe has done to really change this brand in in less than two years. I mean, it's going to be two years now, but in two years, it's a brand where it's a laboratory of ideas, where things get pushed, where new standards are, are valued. The dream here is that we really become the normal 
that it's not the exception, that what Chloe does is not exceptional or what Gabriela Hurst does is not exceptional. It's just a standard. I love what you say about just using common sense and change, to change the way you do things. I'd love to also uh, get your take about the fashion industry's overall attitude to change and to the concept of change. It's an industry that obviously thrives off aesthetic change. We, we change collections every three to six months, but there's always been a, a bit of a shine as a way from more fundamental change, whether it's innovation or a leadership change or just generally changing the status quo sometimes. So do you find that this is evolving with time and when we're moving to a more progressive future and more openness towards fundamental change? I can tell you the answer is yes and in a big yes. And you can look at it from many layers, right? From seven years ago, let's talk about product first, which is what we do, right? We make product. Using the word that stock on our first show got me into trouble with a very fine note. <laughs> Now everybody uses that stock. It's actually become harder for us to get that stock. And then you can see the suppliers getting recycled cashmere and recycled materials. So it's supply and demand. You ask and you shall receive. Push your suppliers and you get it. I see the change happening from a casting perspective. You see the castings of shows seven years ago and you see the castings of shows now. It's amazing. I always think that we get a lot of crap. You know, we are a frivolous um, industry or we're this or we're that, but we're an amazing vehicle for change because you have creativity and you have beauty and beauty is intrinsic to the soul. There will always be appeal since humans have consciousness, they have been decorating themselves. That's not going to change. I look at my children and I look at the young because that's who the world belongs to. They have changed they are not conspicuously consuming. You know, when people say there's a conspicuous consumption, I know there is in a certain age group, but I also look at certain demographics and it's changing. Maybe not in all places and not at the same time, but the change happens at one stage and I, and I see it happening. I know there's a lot to not be hopeful when we look at the state of affairs, but I'm full of hope. Of course. And also speaking of the younger generation, the Fashion Awards is also recognizing a lot of the younger, newer names in, in fashion and especially a lot of brands that are based here in London. And I'd love to get your perspective on, on what these younger brands that are also extremely passionate about sustainability but operate much smaller scale businesses, what can they bring to the table? All young designers I've met because the world is theirs, they they know that sustainability is important. There's not a new brand that sustainability is not part of, of who they are. I yeah. mean, this is something that I started seeing a couple of years ago because I always like to dialogue with upcoming designers. And I think, A, London is full of creativity. Historically, it's always been there. And I think that they have more resources and a more open pathways in the sense of like what people accept now to what they would accept before. Gabriella Hurst there in conversation with Natalie Theodosi. Another winner on the night was Yvonne Chouinard, the founder and former owner of outdoor apparel brand Patagonia. He took home the Outstanding Achievement Award. The gong was received on Yvonne's behalf by the chair of the Patagonia board, Charles Conn, who Natalie Theodosi also caught up with. They discussed Patagonia's sustainable approach to apparel, which has always been a key part of the company's DNA. 
Yeah, well, we're really excited about the um, Fashion Award. And you might not normally think of Patagonia as a fashion company, and that would be right. But we love the idea that the whole apparel industry is getting interested and excited about greater sustainability. As, a, as an industry, it has a substantial worldwide impact. And we think we can achieve you know, both wonderful apparel and more sustainability from um, a, global, a global environmental perspective. And so we're excited um, that the British Fashion Council has chosen to honor Patagonia in this way. And we hope um, over time that this leads to more collaboration around sustainability. It's so interesting that you say you don't really consider yourself as a fashion company, but it seems quite important and relevant at this time that you are being awarded and you are being part uh, of this event alongside all the other design and luxury fashion brands that are taking part. Why do you think it's important for brands like Patagonia to now participate more in these gatherings and to be part of the, of the luxury fashion community? Well, look, I mean, I think we're all, you know, part of one big broad family, which is, you know, apparel that works for folks. And we think that you can marry function and beauty. In fact, it was an English designer, William Morris, all, all those um, years ago who said, you know, have nothing in your home that you don't think functional and that you don't believe to be beautiful. So we think that those can be two sides of the same coin. The idea that you would have foundational items in your closet that serve both function and beauty, I mean, should should be the beginning of sustainability because we need fewer things if we think they meet both of those characteristics. And do you think that designers, creatives across the fashion industry are reassessing the way they approach design and maybe returning to this ethos that William Morris was speaking about and, and thinking about utility or the materials that they're using a lot more than before, where it was a lot more about aesthetics and status and different value system? I think we've seen that over the last uh, couple of decades, actually. Even some of the bigger designers are making moves toward using recycled synthetics and using organic and beyond organic, regenerative organic, um, natural fibers uh, in their clothing. People are also moving toward synthetics uh, in place of leather and in place of fur so that we can also reduce uh, animal cruelty. And I think both uh, small brands and large brands have moved very clearly in this direction. And that's something we'd love to encourage. Since you made the decision to direct cash flow to combating climate change, how has that shifted the way that you think, the way that the teams work? Has it really changed your mindset? And do you foresee that it's going to change even more uh, in 2023? Obviously, the company for a very long time has been focused on sustainability and on doing better. Uh, Yvonne Chouinard, the founder, has been committed uh, and his family, who, who previous shareholders of the company, have been committed to responsibility, um, purpose and sustainability for a long time. That said, Yvonne and the family making this decision clearly signals that they want to take that commitment up a whole uh, notch, a whole level by devoting you know, all, all of the company's value to fighting this. So. I, I think it signals something bigger, and I think it does shift uh, our mindset from uh, kind of day to day of um, you know building a company to 
building a company alongside building a much broader movement toward fighting the environmental crisis. You spoke also about setting an example. And if we go back to the Fashion Awards, you will be receiving your Outstanding Achievement Award alongside peers and brands that are both uh, young independent London designers, also some of the big luxury names will be present. So I'd love to get the advice that you would give to these uh, designers about shifting their value systems and adapting to the fashion landscape, which is for change today. Um, this is good company. Um, we don't seek to lecture to anybody. But I think shoulder to shoulder, we can all do better. And uh, we, we don't need to compromise aesthetics in order to do much better than we have on sustainability. I mentioned already, you know, there's the opportunity to use recycled um, fibers, um, both, both natural fibers and synthetic fibers. And there's the opportunity to make sure that we source from organic and regenerative organic sources when we make these decisions. I hope that our example encourages people to think a little bit more broadly that way. I certainly think we need to move away from cheap, fast fashion. And I know most of the folks who are represented at this set of awards aren't in that business anyway. But that kind of destructive approach to throwaway clothing really has no place in the world that we're going forward in. Patagonia's chair of the board there, Charles Conn. He was in conversation with who else but Natalie Theodosi. We crossed the Atlantic now to take in the sights and sounds of Design Miami, which wrapped up over the weekend. Monocle's US editor, Chris Lord, went along and sent us this report. The 18th edition of Design Miami brought together over 50 galleries, as well as talks, tributes, and 35,000 design lovers traipsing the booths. The loose theme this year was the golden age. It's not the age where, unfortunately, we are living in. Uh, it's some sort of uh, inspiration and wants to be a wish for the future. Design Miami's curatorial director, Maria Cristina Diderot. If we all got together, innovation, technology, and of course people, that maybe all together we can do something about the world, about the planet, about ourselves. Just like a slant to think that if we are all together, then we can make it. It's a laudable sounding ambition, but Miami itself is shining right now. The last few years have seen a huge influx of newcomers to this city, especially New Yorkers coming for sun, but also opportunity as the city really establishes itself as a crossroads of tech, finance, art and design. I asked the CEO of Design Miami, Jennifer Roberts, what that influx has meant for the local collector base. We've seen a tremendous increase in high net worth transplants, um, but they're coming from all over. They're coming from New York, from California, throughout the US. But in terms of people who are buying historic homes or building new homes, I think this is one of the years that we'll see exactly what the impact is. I don't think it's been that evident because we didn't have a full-size fair last year. We were still sort of recovering from COVID, and this year is our first year out of the gate. Um, so I think we've, we've seen record numbers of registrations, and I imagine that a lot of that will be local. I've met many, many people that attribute their moving to Miami to the fairs and opening their eyes up to what 
the city is really like. Now, there's great diversity here, but in the past 20 years, since Art Basel and 18 years since Design Miami started, we've seen the influence of design and architecture on the developments here. And obviously, Craig Robbins with the Design District is, is really a visionary in that realm. So he very cleverly realized that by integrating uh, public art, you know, great architecture, varied architecture and public design, you would attract a public in a different way and create a neighborhood from it. And I think what we've seen is that has spilled out into many other pockets of the city, but now you'll also see world-class architects doing incredible projects all over. And um, and if you talk to some of the real estate agents, they will tell you that the way the buildings are designed now is to be able to provide great space for exhibiting art and design. Design Miami's Jennifer Roberts there was a lot of new work at the fair this year too. Yes, a smattering of modernist big hitters like Jean Prouvé, but many galleries turned up with an array of first-timers. The Future Perfect, for example, debuted no less than 30 brand new works, including a sofa made of resin balloons. Emma Scully Gallery is a New York space that's not even two years old and is already making its mark. Nine uh, female-led studios. All the work is new for this booth. So all commissioned, you know, we really wanted to show a range of fantastic women designers that we work with. There's mirrors everywhere here. There's one huge piece, beautiful piece is with this kind of amazing undulating form around the outside and then all these small little pieces. The large mirror is by Simone Bodmer-Turner. It's her first time at the fair. She's known as a ceramicist but also works in plaster and has some, done some really beautiful large-scale plaster custom commissions. That's so, the amazing frame that's yes, around the outside. Yes, exactly right. And then, you know, it's we conceive this as a gallery wall of mirrors behind. We went to designers and gave them a 18-inch diameter max in order to fit everybody in and keep the booth really cohesive. So um, if you were standing here looking at the wall that we're looking at, you'll see... Well, you'll see us too, looking back. And you'll see us looking back, right back at you. There's been a lot of interest in Miami in the last couple of years yeah. because you've seen this huge influx of people moving from within America to the coast, uh, especially from New York, in fact. What are exhibitors saying about the energy amongst the collectors here? And we are a New York-based gallery and love being in New York, uh, but we sell a lot to Miami already. We know a lot of collectors are here. I think this is a great time of year to reach the global clientele that comes here, spends winters in, in South Florida, as well as people who are moving here and building. So there's there's a lot of excitement. Can you tell us anything exciting from this morning's rush and hustle? Anything, any little news you can, might be able to share? <laughs> We've made some sales this morning, which is great. And, you know, as a first-time exhibitor, we didn't know how it was going to go. Emma Scully. The best booths are those that don't look like showrooms, but feel thoughtful, considered. Argo Projects from Mexico City covered their entire booth in bright, sun-soaked tiles. Here's the gallery's co-founder, Rodman Primack. We have been working on this project with our designer, Fabian Capello, who's a French designer based in Guadalajara, Mexico, for a number of years. And we've wanted to bring forward this collection of unique artworks that are basically tile murals that can be applied to a home or to a public project in some format. Each one of them is unique. So we actually brought it and installed it and completely covered the booth with these tiles. And, you know, people are really liking it. And Fabian worked with a very well-known 
Guadalajara-based ceramic studio called Ceramica Suro. Just tell me a bit about that. Ceramica Suro and Jose Noe Suro are a really kind of a lodestar in the, the creative community in Mexico. So many of our artist friends have come to Guadalajara to work with Jose because he's really willing to explore what can be done or what hasn't been done before or what we'd like to do in ceramic. It's brilliant because it brings a bit of south of the border light to this booth, doesn't it? It brings a whole place to life. Just talk me through a little bit the, the collection that lives on these tiles now because you've got some great pieces around this here. All right, I, I'd love to tell you a little bit about a table by Lance Atelier, which is a, uh, an architect, husband and wife, based in Mexico City. And they've created this steel dining room table in which the chairs are nestled inside of the, the table. There's no interruption to the table surface, and it has this kind of beautiful bulbous shape, almost like clouds. And this becomes like a sculpture, like a volume, that's all contained within this form. Ceramics were in abundance this year's Design Miami. Lebanese designer Neda Debs worked with manufacturing giant Kohler to create a hammam bathhouse right there in Design Miami, with all the tiles made from the waste products of Kohler's factory. Here's Neda. This is a room of the spiritual rejuvenation and the physical rejuvenation. So this is a room where you're scrubbing yourself and you're doing your real cleansing. And so the room is made of bone-colored tiles. So traditionally in a, in a hammam, you would lie on one of these tiled spaces and be scrubbed down, really, wouldn't you? Exactly, exactly. Neda, I'm interested, in the last few years, you've relocated your studio from Beirut to, to Dubai, and you've based there now, and you have a team there who works with you. You've also done a number of large public projects. You know, you've done the redesign of the Arab League building in Cairo. Now we're in, in a way, we're in a very public space, the Hammam, but that's also about privacy. Just tell me where your mind is right now and what's, what's firing your imagination at the moment. People that come to me, like governments, institutional uh, projects, uh, even Kohler, which is one of the largest global companies, I think the common element is that there's something about what I do that relates to something global. And this is where I'm very um, fortunate to have these opportunities to work with these global brands, um, uh, to think really in a, in a more uh, global way and more transcending and getting to the essence of what people want and need. Looking ahead, what have you got coming up in the next, in the next couple of years? I'm, I suspect you've got some big projects on the horizon. Uh, yes, we do. We are really interested in hospitality projects. Right now in the Middle East, there seems to be a big surge of hotels coming up. And so we're really interested in the hospitality world. Well, Nada Debs, always nice to see you and, and great to go through your hammam as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. For Monocle in Miami, I'm Chris Lord. Finally on today's show, Polestar. The Swedish premium electric car maker has just launched Polestar 3, its first SUV. As one would expect from the Gothenburg-based company, it combines Scandinavian minimalism with the smart stylings of a sport utility vehicle. Maximilian Massoni, head of Polestar Design, has led the charge on the new car. He joined me down the line to discuss the cultural impact of automobiles and how symbols of luxury have shifted over time. The car is the most complex mass-manufactured product, uh, consumer product. So 
there are more complex products like planes and, and maybe large vessels, large ships, but they are not mass manufactured. So the idea of being able to replicate the exact same result over and over again in such a fast pace is, is very fascinating. And what lies behind that is extremely complex. And people sometimes wonder, why does it take so long to for a car design or for a, uh, an idea to end up in production? Why is it like four years sometimes that it takes, in some cases, even longer? And the reason for that is that we're not only designing and developing a car, but then once the product is ready and developed, the manufacturing engineering starts, which then develops the production line and the factory and the robots that then assemble the parts. I mean, that's such a complex process. And it is fascinating to have the power to influence that and to create desirable products that are a result of this highly complex process. I know there are a lot of moving parts to obviously get into production and ultimately produce a car. Can you tell me a little bit more about that complexity? I mean, you've got, firstly, it has to be mass manufactured, which means, you know, it needs to be able to be replicated and and the parts need to be produced consistently. But then you've also got this whole idea of, you know, as you said, it's it's a moving object in architecture. You've got this movement component and the the object, the car changes over time and, and in different spaces and at different moments. Can you tell us a little bit about that complexity and how that impacts your work as, as head of design? I think once you realize the cultural impact that cars have, beyond the complexity of the product itself, but what cars do to a cityscape or a society, again, when you try to compare it to architecture, architects create mostly single structures, single buildings that become very famous and that they are placed in certain parts of the world. But cars, they are so omnipresent in cities and they really change the face of cities. They have much more impact in that regard than architecture can ever have. Speaking of impact, can you tell us a little bit about your newest car? What impact do you hope it will have on the people driving it? And I guess what perhaps sets it apart from the competition? Polestar 3 is a really exciting creature in a way because Polestar 3 is combining what we love about SUVs and what made SUVs that successful, the seating position being higher off the ground, the semantics of an SUV, the kind of archetype, the proportions, the capable attitude that we uh, cherish in SUVs. But then they combine with the uh, efficiency that we have to bring in and that we want to bring in in the electrical electrification, the year of electrification. So we've drastically lowered the roof line by changing the seating position in the car itself. So you still have a very high, you're high off the ground, you have a good overview of the road, but then you're having a more sporty seating position. And that enhances the the aerodynamics of the vehicle. And then beyond that, we have added aerodynamic enhancement features that make the car even more efficient. But still, we keep the strong character of an SUV. And I think that's for for us, it's really the sweet spot where an SUV of the electric age should be. To me, it sort of sounds like you've drawn some inspiration from obviously SUVs, as you mentioned there, but I guess there's also cultural touchstones, what what we know a car to be, what we know SUVs to be. Can you tell me a little bit more about that that inspiration and and where you drew it from? I guess, firstly, for the Polestar 3, but more broadly for your work as, as a designer. If you start a new car brand, which we had the privilege to do, and it's it's a fairly big thing because it's not so usual that new brands in the automotive space are being created, especially not in Europe. And, and there's some in the US, but we are quite, I would say we're quite unique for a standalone new startup brand that has um, 
to be fair, a, a basis in a, in a big group. So we have that foundation, but still for, for European standards, it's quite unique. And then you, you have to ask yourself, which way do you want to go? Do you want to remind people very quickly about the paradigms of the past? What, what has made luxury cars luxury cars? And how do you, how do you um, translate those things once again into products? Or do you really look at society and where we stand now and what the new issues are, what the new challenges are, and try to translate those things into products? And we have definitely chosen that uh, path. And that makes it for us designers so exciting because we really get to discover new ways. I mean, can you tell us how you're, you're breaking those paradigms of the past? What, what, what are you doing that, that really does set Polestar apart? In the past, the symbols of luxury, there were, you know, chrome, wood and leather and the classical elements of car culture. And that's within the, the lifestyle. Um, I'm not talking about performance yet. That comes later. But that's within the, the lifestyle aspect. So it's, it's these things. And we have abandoned these things in order to understand what are the new the new paradigms that we should look look at and when you talk about intelligence then technology comes to mind and we're really using technology as an inspiration for the designers and we're not hiding the technology in the second layer we're actually pointing towards technology as some kind of element of luxury so we we have lidar sensors that we proudly present we have a smart zone in the front of our cars instead of the grill uh, we're really going from breathing to seeing there so we show off the technical elements like cameras and radars and the heating systems and the cleaning devices that are needed to keep those sensors functioning at all time. And we include them into our design work. We're not trying to hide them away because that threshold has, has passed. We're now at the point where this is something to celebrate uh, technology. That was Maximilian Massoni, head of Polestar Design there. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by May Lee Evans. She also edited the show with assistance from Steph Chungu and Lillian Fawcett. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>